The past uh, two and a half weeks have been kind of exciting with our new 45th president, Donald Trump. Uh, He's very interesting and colorful, is he not? And since he's not a politician, he's not in debt to fellow politicians, plus he's a New York businessman. And if, if you're a New Yorker, you don't take gruff from anybody. And we see that with all his many, many tweets. Uh, he's not learned how to do Washington yet. And there are many people that hope that he never does. Looking at the evening television, uh, Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Fallon and Conan O'Brien and Seth Meyers and Samantha Bee and Stephen Colbert have four years of job security. Because <laughs> they're going to make fun of him all the days of his presidency. But politicians have kind of a motto, both Democrats and Republicans alike. And it's basically this. Number one, say anything to get elected. And number two, promise everything to get elected. Say anything to get elected and promise everything to get elected. That's the rule that you live and die if you are a politician in Washington, D.C. The problem is, of course, and there are many of them, is that no president has the power or the strength or the might or the ability to get things done. They simply can't do it. Their, their promises are like pie crusts. They are made to be broken. When you make a pie crust, you're going to eat the pie, so that pie crust is made to be broken. And the politician, and normally everything else being equal, basically breaks promises. It's the old joke. How can you tell when a politician is lying? His lips are moving. And there might be an element of truth to that. But sometimes people can codify their promises. They can codify their last wishes. And we call that the last will and testament. The last will and testament. And if everything goes well and if everything goes correctly, the details of those promises will be executed properly. Now, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, of course, was not a politician. He was indeed the Savior of the world. But he did give to us, he did leave to us his last will and testament. And his last will and testament was an oral form that we call the Upper Room Discourse, the Upper Room Discourse, which consumes John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. It's a very, very important segment in the life of our Lord Jesus, the Upper Room Discourse, John 13 through 17, which he articulated just hours, literally hours, before he was crucified on that old rugged cross. Now, one of the eyewitnesses and also an ear witness to what our Lord said was the Apostle John. And he waited about 60 years later to write down what he heard those six decades previously in the upper room. And that is why we have John's Gospel. That is why we have the Upper Room Discourse of John chapters 13 through 17, again, articulated just hours before our Lord was crucified at 9 a.m. on Good Friday morning. Now, his will, his last will and testament, had many, many promises that will be fulfilled after his death, but they will be fulfilled because he is God. 
the Lord Jesus Christ is God. And a couple of the promises that he made as we make our way through my final series here as your pastor would be the two things for today would be the Holy Spirit and peace. The Holy Spirit and peace. Because our Lord made some promises about the Holy Spirit. He made promises about peace that were in his last will and testament. And they will be done, not broken like a politician's promises. So today we're going to be approaching the text in the uproom discourse, but we're not going to go through it verse by verse by way of exposition. We're going to be looking at the Holy Spirit by way of a topic, a topic, a topical study this morning. But the topic will be very, very easy for you to follow because, first of all, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit's relationship to Christ. Secondly, the Holy Spirit's relationship to Christians. And thirdly, the Holy Spirit's relationship to non-Christians. So this Holy Spirit that our Lord's going to talk about in the uproom discourse, he's related to Jesus Christ as a member of the eternal trinity. He's related to us because he empowers us. And he's also related to unsaved people because you cannot be born again. You cannot be saved You cannot be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, you might not be aware of it when it's happening, but down the road, you will know it for certain that the Holy Spirit has a pre-conversion ministry in your life. So what we want to do, therefore, is look at some topical verses, and we'll do that by taking them all from the Upper Room Discourse. Now, as I've mentioned many times, The Upper Room Discourse gives us little seeds of truth that have to wait to be germinated, and it takes literally decades for the rest of the New Testament to catch up to the Upper Room Discourse. So remember, one Upper Room Discourse equals 21 epistles. That's amazing. That's amazing. And today we're going to see how the Holy Spirit and Christ and the Father, that is, the Holy Trinity evolves in uh, not only their relationship one to the other, but their relationship to us. But so let's start uh, in our morning message with the first of our three major movements, the first being the Holy Spirit's relationship to Christ, the Holy Spirit's relationship to Christ. And the key word that you need to hear is the word procession, procession. Now, that is a theological term, and basically it answers the question, how did God the Son leave heaven to come down to Bethlehem and be born? And how did the Holy Spirit leave heaven to inhabit believers at Pentecost? What, what, how does that happen? What's going on here? And theologians call that the, the procession, that is, The Son proceeds from the Father, and we call that a generation. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, and we actually call that the procession of the Holy Spirit. It's the way to get the Trinity, basically the Son and the Spirit, from heaven to earth. Yesterday at Norm Donaldson's funeral, there was a funeral procession. And I went from the funeral home to the cemetery. They call that a funeral possession. How do you get from one point to the other? And here in the uproom discourse, we have several verses in which Jesus teaches the Trinity and this procession. 
Again, just listen. Don't try to follow or write anything down because there's just too many verses that we're going to approach. But let me just share with you these verses from the Word of God in the Uproom Discourse. For example, under the concept of procession, uh, chapter 14, verse 26, but the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. So at chapter 14, verse 26, the Father is sending, the Father is sending. But note, we have the Holy Spirit, who is the helper. We have the word Father, and we have the personal pronoun, my, that is Jesus. So here is a Trinitarian verse. You can put a little equilateral triangle in the margin of your Bible. Now I'm dropping down to uh, chapter 15, verse 26. Chapter 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. Again, a Trinitarian verse, but note at verse 26, Jesus says, I'm going to send him. I'm going to ascend on the 40th day. I'm going to wait a week and a half. And on, on Pentecost, on the 50th day, I'm going to send the Spirit. My Father is going to send the Spirit. And we call this theologically the procession of the Holy Spirit. But please note, the Son and the Father say that the Holy Spirit is such a big deal that it's like a tag team bout where the the Father and the Son both send the Spirit. And we are most certainly glad that he did. So that is the word procession, a very, very theological term. The second term I want you to note is the word glorification, glorification moving from procession to glorification. And the Holy Spirit has a specific responsibility, and that is to glorify Christ. Again, I'm reading at chapter 16 at verse 13. And here the Bible begins, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, and now the opening verses of verse 14, he will glorify me. He will glorify me. Now, if you have a real, real good memory you'll remember that glorifying God and glorification was one of the two elements of a sermon a few weeks ago. For example, at John chapter 13, verse 32, John 13, 32, again in the uproom discourse, the Bible says, God will also glorify Jesus. So God the Father wants to glorify Jesus. Our verse at chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, the Holy Spirit wants to glorify Jesus. Now, if the Father and the Spirit want to glorify Jesus, you're on very, very thick ice. If you, too, in your life, want to glorify God, that is, you want to make his attributes shine forth from your life. I love the King James in the book of 1 Peter at chapter 2, when it says that we are to show forth the, here it is, excellencies, the excellencies of our God. So the excellencies of our God are his attributes, which are to shine forth in our lives. So moving from procession to glorification, we now come to application. And application is a little bit more in detail about glorifying God. I mentioned this before briefly, but here I want to camp on it for just a a few minutes. If God the Father glorifies Christ, John 13, 31. If the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ, John 16, 14. Then we had better glorify God in our lives as well. 
That is a preeminent teaching of the Word of God, that is, to guard and glorify his wonderful and great name. In the Westminster Shorter Confession, question number one, what is the, 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 the purpose and the end result of man? And he is to glorify God, and some say, by enjoying him forever, as John Piper says. But I want to leave that quote. I want to get back to the Bible. And I want you to know that glorifying God is so very important. Here it comes. You are born for his glory, you live for his glory, and you die for his glory. From womb to tomb and everywhere in between, you should be consumed with glorifying Christ because that's what the Father wants to do. That's what the Son wants to do. I like, for example, being born for the glory of God in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. Even everyone who is called by my name, I have created you for my glory. Yes, I have formed you. Yes, I have made you. So to use the verbs of Isaiah chapter 43, you are created, formed, made, in one sense, born for the glory of God. You were created as a vessel to glorify God. Then maybe the Bible verse you know for your entire life of glorifying God Um, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Or at 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do in eating or drinking or whatever, do all for the glory of God at 1 Corinthians 10.31. And then um, at the end of your life, you can die for the glory of God because Jesus looked at Simon Peter at John chapter 21 at verses 18 and 19, explaining that when Peter was young, he put on his own clothes, ran about wherever he wanted to go. But when he becomes old, another one's going to bind him and literally take him to death. And then the King James says, this Jesus spoke to Peter, signifying by what death Peter would glorify God. My friend, that should be all-consuming I'm born for God's glory. I live for God's glory. I die for God's glory. And one way we can make sure we glorify God is to be what I've said many times in the past 33 years. Is your life a magnifying glass that makes God and Christ look larger? Or is your magnifying glass still in that that, that velvet case, uh, stuck in that drawer and is never, ever used? Or is it so dirty and smudged and scratched that it's basically worthless? But the idea of magnifying Christ, Psalm 34, verse 3, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. How about Psalm 69, verse 30? I will praise the name of the Lord and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. In the New Testament, Mary says at Luke chapter 1, verse 46, My soul does magnify the Lord. Acts chapter 19, verse 17, A miracle was done, and the name of the Lord was magnified. And probably the verse that you know, and the one I like the best, Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, that Christ might be magnified in my life, in my body, whether it be by life or by death. 
but to magnify Christ in your body, Philippians 1.20. That's what we want to do. Now, a magnifying glass does not make the object under it any larger. So if I have a magnifying glass, I'm looking at a penny. The penny does not grow at all. But boy, it sure does seem to look larger. And your life cannot add anything to deity. But your life certainly can make God look larger and more brilliant and more significant and more glorious. And that's why if the Father glorifies the Son and if the Spirit glorifies the Son, then let's be on that team, those that glorify the Son as well as those who glorify the Father. So that's very, very important, the Holy Spirit's relationship to Christ in procession, in glorification, and in our application. But now secondly, secondly in our list of three, secondly in our list of three, the Holy Spirit's relationship to Christians, the Holy Spirit's relationship to Christians. So we're going from Christ to Christians, you and I, but we're still focusing on the Holy Spirit because that's one of the major gifts and promises that Jesus Christ presented in the upper room. So here I'm at chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. Chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. And I'm going to be making four general remarks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us as believers, as born again. And the first one would be the word abiding, but your Bible might call it dwelling. Your Bible might call it indwelling. It's not really a problem, but all of us have favorite Bible translations. And all these translations take the Hebrew and Greek and tweak them a little differently. But whether your Bible says abiding or dwelling or indwelling, that's what I'm talking about. So here it is, John chapter 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father, that's the first and second members of the Trinity, and he will give you another helper, that's the third member of the Trinity, that's the Holy Spirit, that he may be with you forever, verse 17, that is the spirit of truth. And then at the end of the verse, he abides with you and will be in you. He abides with you and he will be in you. And that's the abiding ministry. Even better, the permanently abiding ministry of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, there was a Holy Spirit, but he came and went, so to speak, in the lives of individuals. But Jesus says, I want to drop a bombshell on you. When the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, 50 days after the death, burial, and resurrection, he's going to come, and he's never, ever going to leave you. And nobody in that upper room had ever thought of that even once. It's like, by analogy, when Jesus said to the disciples, when you pray, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven. There was not one Jew since Abraham that ever prayed that because the fatherhood of God was unknown individually in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel had God as a father, but you read 150 Psalms, not once does a psalmist call God his father because that was not how they did it back then. But Jesus revolutionized prayer by saying, if you, you really want to pray well, start this way. Our Father who art in heaven, you could have knocked those apostles over with a feather. Same way here, the Holy Spirit's going to abide with me and will be with me forever. 
Where did that come from? I've never heard that before in my life, said the apostles. But that's how powerful it is that we have a permanently indwelling Holy Spirit who abides with us, who dwells with us, who indwells us. I love Romans chapter 8, as many of you do. Here's Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he who raised up Christ from the dead shall also give life to your dead body because his spirit dwells in you. So I have a great future because the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, dwells in me. And if that spirit raised up Jesus from the dead, then I'm going to be raised from the dead. No doubt about it. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you at 2 Timothy 1.14. Then some of you know the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not know that you were bought with a price and the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you're not from yourself. And that verse talks about the Holy Spirit who is in you. So Romans 8, 11, 2 Timothy 1, 14, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, all these verses, as well as the uproom discourse, say that I have eternal security. The Holy Spirit indwells me permanently. Great adverb, permanently. But that abiding, number one, is followed by teaching, number two. And again, the word teaching, depending on your version, it will be either be teaching or testifying or disclosing or revealing. Again, our English Bibles have a little bit of flexibility here. But I'm at John chapter 14, then I'll be at John chapter 15, then I'll be at John chapter 16, taking these little snippet verses. But I'm going to begin with the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit at chapter 14, verse 26. Chapter 14, verse 26. But the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, here it is, he will teach you all things and bring into remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit teaches and he brings into remembrance. Now I shift to the next chapter, chapter 15 at verse 26. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, here it is, he will testify about me. He will testify. He will give record, evidence, and testimony. That's the other translations of this Greek word. God the Spirit wants to testify and give evidence and give proof of the teachings of the Word of God. And then lastly, at chapter 16, verse 13, chapter 16, verse 13, it begins when he, the spirit of truth, comes at the end of the verse. He will disclose to you what is to come. He will disclose to you what is to come. So the Holy Spirit teaches and testifies and discloses. He reveals. And there are many verses in addition to the upper room that teach this. The easiest to remember is Luke 12, 12, Luke 12, 12. The Holy Spirit will teach you in the precise moment what you ought to say. But the Holy Spirit teaches you in the precise moment what you ought to say. If you have ever done personal evangelism, if you ever taught a Bible study, if you've ever done one-on-one counseling, you know that verse to be true. You'll be talking, all of a sudden a verse out of the blue will smash into your mind and 
echo throughout Ukrainian. Like, where did that come from? Luke 12, 12, the Holy Spirit will teach you in the precise moment that you need it what you ought to say. What a powerful ministry that is, the teaching ministry of the Word of God. And now the third, the third on our list would be the word guiding, the word guiding. But again, you might have leading or directing, leading or directing as synonyms. In fact, many Christians pray, God, would you lead, guide, and direct? Lead, guide, and direct. Lead, guide, and direct. Those are all biblical terms. They're all biblical verbs. I'm at chapter 16, verse 13, chapter 16, verse 13, and it says this, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. We sing, guide me, O thou great Jehovah, but here the Holy Spirit is guiding us into truth. Peter, remember, was a fisherman, and as a fisherman, he had boats on the Sea of Galilee, and they were sailboats, and the wind would fill that sail and guide him to the next point he wanted to be. Interestingly, Peter in Second Peter says, that's how inspiration works that the Spirit of God fills the sail of the human author and guides that author to write the very words of God, the very epistles of the New Testament. But the point here is that the Holy Spirit, he leads, he guides, and he directs us into sound biblical orthodoxy, great doctrines of the truth of the Word of God. And it's been my joy for these decades to do just that. I am so confident of the teachings of the Word of God that I'm going to bank the eternal destiny of my soul on them. They're not going to let me down. They're not going to let me down. And I want you to have that same confidence and that same assurance. Now, as we move from uh, the Holy Spirit's relationship to Christ to the Holy Spirit's relationship to Christians. Now, thirdly and lastly, we want to move to the Holy Spirit's relationship to non-Christians, the Holy Spirit's relationship to non-Christians. In other words, in evangelism or sharing your faith or giving a testimony, the Holy Spirit says, I want some of the action. I want to be involved in, in that kind of work. So what we'd like to look at at uh, our third and final movement for this morning is that uh, the Holy Spirit, relationship to non-Christians, there are things that a helpless soul cannot do, and there's things that the Holy Spirit can do. But let's, let's look at the negative, first of all. And I'm now at uh, chapter 14, verse 17. John chapter 14, verse 17. Here are three things that a helpless soul cannot do. A helpless soul cannot do. Um, Verse 17, the spirit of truth, whom, first of all, the world cannot receive, because secondly, it does not see him, or thirdly, it does not know him. But you know him, because he abides in you and will be with you. But the idea here, in the three words that are used, an unsafe person does not receive, he does not see, he does not know. Those are three horrible strikes against an unbeliever. He cannot receive divine truth. God's talking FM, and all he has is AM. And no matter how hard he tries, there'll be no reception. 
his spiritual antennae are broken. They are broken. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, he gave authority to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name at John 1, 11, and 12. But the point is, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him at 1 Corinthians 2.14. So there, there's no reception. Secondly, the verse says they do not see things. They have blinded eyes. Their spiritual perception is not 20-20. They can't even see the chart. They have so many cataracts, they don't know if they are on foot or horseback. They think that they can work their way to heaven. They think that if your good outweighs the bad, you're going to get to heaven. They think God grades on a curve. Where in God's green earth did those things come from? Not the word of God. So the idea is that, that an unsafe person cannot receive, cannot see, and thirdly, he does not know. I love the expression, can you connect the dots? Go from one, two, three, ah, Eureka! An unsafe person cannot connect the dots. Good Friday, Easter Sunday, Christmas morning, huh? What's going on? I remember as a 17-year-old when I was saved, I could have told you what Christmas was about, but living in America every day of my life, I could not have told you what Good Friday and Easter Sunday was about. I, I, I honestly could not tell you what those two days were. I was that unknowledgeable, that ignorant, and they just cannot connect the dots. A Bible verse like, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Man, that's a gold mine, and it puts other people to sleep. The unbelievers, the unregenerate, those who have no hope because they are apart from Christ. So if you are under the sound of my voice and you are not a Christian, you are not a believer, I know why. You cannot receive, you cannot see, and you do not know. And and if I move to the next segment, which I will at chapter 16, chapter 16, the Holy Spirit's going to do three things to combat the three negative things that you have in your own life. In other words, you cannot receive, see, or know. But now when we come to chapter 16, the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to do three things. And if you respond to these correctly through the teaching and the wooing of the Holy Spirit, then eternal life will be yours. Uh, I'm reading John chapter 16, beginning at verse 7 and going down to verse number 9. But the Bible says this, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, because if I do not go away, the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, that is the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. So let's look at the Holy Spirit's ministry in reference to sin, righteousness, and judgment. The first, of course, is that word sin. Uh, people hate that word. In systematic theology, theologians debate 
What is the, the worst or the first sin? Is it unbelief or pride? Is it unbelief or pride? Well, here the idea would be unbelief in this, in this specific passage. The sin in your life causes you to be an unbeliever. You have no belief system. Um, Isaiah 59.2, your sins have separated you from God. And that separation is so great that it'll cost you your physical life and it'll cost you your spiritual life. It'll cost you your physical life because you're going to drop dead. And it's going to cost you your spiritual life because you're going to go to hell. But I want to convict you of your sin to show you that so that you don't send yourself to hell. God does not want anybody to send himself or herself to hell. So the Holy Spirit says, I will convict the world of sin, verse 9, because they do not believe in me. Then secondly, secondly, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness. That's the middle of verse number 8. And then dropping down to verse number 10, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. Concerning righteousness because... I go to the Father. And what this simply means is that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ shows you how serious God takes sin in your life. It's the right thing to do. It's the righteous thing to do, like the end of Romans chapter 3, that God would accept a substitute in place of you. How can God be just and also the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. How does he do that? And he does it by not accepting anything that you do because your works of righteousness are as filthy rags. Your works of righteousness are as filthy rags. Not according to the righteousness that we have done, but according to your mercy you have saved us at Titus chapter 3 verse 5. And it was so right of God to send his son to die on the cross in place of you that God's spirit wants you to know just that. And then thirdly and lastly, the Holy Spirit will convict you concerning judgment. That's the end of verse number 8 and all of verse number 11. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world, that is Satan, has been judged. Listen closely. If God will judge Satan, he'll have no problem at all judging you. If God will judge Satan, he'll have no problem judging you. Uh, You are of your father, the devil, at John chapter 8, verse 44. But the point is simply this. God has to punish, judge, condemn sin. He has to do it or he will not be holy. He will not be righteous. If God does not punish and judge and condemn sin, then you might as well sin and get away with it. But because God is holy, because God is righteous, he has to punish and judge and condemn sin. And he says, I have just two ways to do that. You can bear that yourself, which is stupid, and send yourself to hell, or you can have my divine son, the substitute, Bear the wrath and judgment and curse of God in your place to guarantee that heaven would be your home. And it's surprising how many countless hundreds of millions prefer the old way 
their way, Adam and Eve's way, rather than the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ, your Lord. Sometimes you get so exasperated and say, if you're that stupid, you deserve to go to hell. That's shocking. We don't say it very often, but holy smokes, what more can God do to stop you from sending yourself to hell? He sent the Holy Spirit. He sent his son. There's these ministries going on. Ay, ay, ay. Jesus Christ wants you to be saved. Not today, now. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Well, beloved, maybe not the best way to enter the communion table by talking about hell. But that wonderful Holy Spirit has relationship to Christ that we should know because we want to know our God. And the Holy Spirit has a special relationship to us. And we should revel and rejoice in that. And the Holy Spirit has a special relationship to unbelievers, the non-Christians. And we should do our best to make sure they hear from our lips that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Almost like a cheer at a football game. But that is great theology. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Dear Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit. We did not have time to talk about the peace that the Holy Spirit brings, but that indeed is true. So as we approach divine truth in the Word of God and also participate in the ordinance of the church, which we call the Lord's Table, the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, uh, the Eucharist service, we rejoice to know that you care for us enough to cause us to think and reflect upon you in a new and great way. As we now pray in Jesus' name, amen.